The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. We have a trio of interviews on the Pace Line that will tell you what it's like to race for and run a pro cycling team. I'm not a huge fan of crits, and I just like longer, harder races, especially stage races. We've done a lot of team time trials on the team with uh, Rally and formerly Optum. Um, I definitely enjoy those experiences, but they're some of the most painful times you can have on a bicycle. There's a lot of good riders. There's so much more depth in the Peloton today compared to what it was like, say, 20, 25 years ago. But there's not enough teams that have enough money to really sustain that. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, show number 57, and it is an interview special, a special interview special, if you will. <laughs> Hottie has the week off, though uh, with any luck, you've no doubt already heard him teasing out the show. Uh, I tell you what, uh, I listen to every episode of the Paceline just so I can hear how Hottie teases out the show. He does such a great job with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh We'd be a lot less without him. That's true. And I, I I would like to be a lot less. Specifically, I would like to be about seven pounds less, but I don't think that's what you meant. Um, I am I am Fatty, uh, better known as Jonathan Vodder's Science Project slash Coaching Charity Case. And I'll be talking a little bit more about that. And with me is Patrick Brady, the lead haberdasher and publisher of Red Kite Prayer. And, and is, the guy who's soon going to weigh the same amount as you if I keep going up as you're going down. Wouldn't that be nice? You'll you'll always be no. a foot taller, but uh, at least we'll be the same weight. No, I do not like that. I, <laughs> I am not Sam I am. Um, no, no, I got to get serious. Um, uh, I'm starting to eat salads for dinner. Fantastic. Just make sure you have lots of croutons and ranch dressing on them. <laughs> so. you, were, you were almost exactly no help. I, you know, that is probably something that I should just put on my business card. Fatty, exactly no help. <laughs> anyway, Red Kite Prayers, where you can find links, photos, and whatnot for this show. And the show itself, you can find on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and of course, iTunes. And I want to read the most recent iTunes review that we got. Uh, this one came out on February 27th from Keen Edge 10. And I really like this one. And it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit, uh, not ironic, but perhaps unfortunate considering that it's just you and me today. But uh, Keen Edge 10 says, love the three together. And I'm going to agree with that. Fatty's interview with the Vodders was awesome. I will also agree with that. Um, I, I had very little to do with that, but man, where's, Vodders where's is the a, butt? Yeah. 
well, Vodders is a great, great interview. You know, there is no yeah. bad. Um, oh. it, it, very informative. Love their favorites. Love the variety of guests. Look forward to every podcast. So, uh, Keen Edge 10, thank you so much for the nice rating, the nice review. And, you know, if you have not left a review and a rating on iTunes, please do so. It helps other people find this podcast, which is the entire reason that we do it. <laughs> no, I think there's other reasons, right? But we do I, like I the hope. big fat five-star ratings, right? Yes. It only yes. takes a minute. So, Patrick, uh, we're doing three interviews this episode. Before we start on those, tell us a little bit about what's coming up. Why, who are we interviewing and why? And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, how things are going as being a, a science, project. science project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking, uh, well, I was talking with uh, the team director and two of the riders from Team Rally, arguably the, the best domestic pro team uh, going right now. And to call them strictly domestic isn't exactly accurate, uh, as Jonas Carney, team director, noted in our interview. They go to Europe a few times each year, but they're... Their primary goals and ambitions are here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, this is one of the longest standing uh, domestic teams, um, you know, second only to Jelly Belly at this point. And they're a team that really gets great results. Uh, Evan Huffman, one of the riders that I interview, won the KOM jersey at the Tour of California last year. Uh, he's a real rising star and somebody who's probably going to go on to uh, bigger and better things, which will be good for him and less good for Team Rally. Hmm. Uh, I also speak with uh, Jesse Anthony, who is a New Englander, uh, cut his teeth in, in that scene and racing a lot of cross for hot tubes way back when. Uh, I ran photos of him in my magazine Asphalt back in the early 2000s uh, while he was still a junior and uh, racing cross and whatnot. Um, he now spends uh, a fair chunk of each year in Southern California riding the canyon roads above Malibu. And so that's the big reason I wanted to sit down with him was to get his perspective on that. So three really interesting guys, one hot team. Uh, it was fun to get uh, a day to go and spend with them at their team camp. And uh, I even spent a little time hanging out with their mechanics uh, who are listeners of the Paceline, by the way. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And, you know, th that's something that you don't get often is the triangulation of, you know, the the director as well as some of the racers, your up-and-comers, your veterans, all of that. It, this uh, this is going to be a good show, uh, give people kind of a real sense of the team. So yeah. I – and before we get to that, I am going to read some email. Um, so uh, Jonathan Vodders and I have been exchanging a lot of email and mostly him just telling me what I need to do. And since I, th I think our, most of our listeners are probably curious what it is like to be getting email from uh, the director of a, an important big team, a world tour team, <laughs> yeah. telling yeah. you how you ought to be writing, I thought, you know, this is, going to, this is actually worth reading some of this. And so I, I'm mostly going to be skipping what I wrote back because it's not important. It was mostly me just asking, you know, and telling him how I did. But just, you know, him telling me, you know, what to do. So uh, just kicking off here. Uh, so this is uh, Love Letters from Jonathan Vodders. No, it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
So he sa- he starts off by saying, if I were going to say one thing short term, it would be to try and lengthen out your rides and lower the intensity a bit. Remember, he's having me work toward a fast time at Leadville 100. If, right. say, on Sunday you could go closer to four or four and a half hours, but drop your heart rate by 10 beats per minute on average, I think that will help. From what I can see, you're very good about being consistent in training. However, you need to start working toward doing a few really long days every week, then having a few really easy rest days every week too. Try going over four hours on Sunday, then take Monday off, and we'll work from there. And then he gets more specific and says, do 200 watts for four hours, and that'll be a good indication to me of where your fat max threshold is. And then parenthetically, yes, that's a real term, and you'll hear me use it a lot. And you're the right guy for fat max. Aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) But here's what's interesting. He sent that, you know, like it, I'm not even exactly sure, sometime late at night. And then first, like, you know, like 10 a.m. the next morning, you know, just a a three-word email, how'd it go? And Wow. and then um, he follows up shortly after that saying, for reference, fat max is basically the point intensity at which your body burns the highest amount of fat possible. You'll also be using a lot of carbohydrate, carbohydrate at this intensity, but if you go any harder, then you convert to almost pure carbohydrate. Usually fat max is about the intensity you can handle for three hours of maximum effort. FTP is the power you can handle for 45 minutes of your maximum effort. So generally speaking, fat max is about 20% less power than FTP. Anyhow, could you hold the 200 watts for four hours? And then he sent me another email saying, okay, two things, hydrate, three exclamation points, 60 to 80 grams of carbohydrate per hour, drink, 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 and eat. And then another email, well... And at, at that point, I realized that um, I, that he is someone who is expecting very prompt response. <laughs> and, and so I, I let him know at that point, and I won't go into my email saying, um, haven't done it yet, uh, you know, doing work. Uh, I, will, I will be doing it at this time in the evening. And since then, I've been very specific of I will be doing my workout at this time of the day and letting you know immediately how it goes. Because he, I mean, he is incredibly detail-oriented. And that's, you know, that was new and very interesting to me. So I, I did I did the um, four hours at 200 watts, uh, just did it on the kicker, uh, exactly as, as he told me to do, told him. I was like, well, you know, th- that left me pretty cooked, but I was able to do it, no problem. And oh my I, gosh. I, the next day I was, um, you know, the next day I felt fine. And he, he let me know. Um, and I, I did not paste this email in, but he's like, oh, so it looks like your fat max is a little over 200 Watts. So, you know, and he adap- adapted his, uh, regiments and sent then Monday, he says today, try and take the time to find or take a short nap, no exercise, just chill. When you tell me you're still alive, I, I'll get a weekly program to you. Seems like your fat max might be a bit over 200 Watts. And then Tuesday, okay, so today we'll do what I refer to as a transition day, meaning transition from a rest day to a hard training day. If you can do around one and a half hours on the bike, averaging around 170 watts, but always with an RPM over 100, keep the legs light and the gear small. Also, spread throughout this ride six short 15-second sprints, maximum effort, but very short period. 
starting at 85 RPM or so and finishing the sprint at 120 RPMs. The goal today is to increase efficiency at high RPMs. And that was interesting. So that was yesterday evening that I did that workout. And that is the longest I have ever held 100 RPMs. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a masher, um, you know, having been a single speed guy for a long time. Right. Doing 100 RPMs at a light gear, that was difficult for me. You know, probably, you know, and it, it was interesting, you know, he was thinking of that as sort of like a relatively light workout. For me, <laughs> holding that kind of cadence yeah. um, at, you know, very little resistance was nutty. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I am learning so much from him. And and, and here, here's kind of the funny thing. All of his emails are, you know, ha- have the default sent from my iPhone signature. He's writing these long emails to me with his thumbs. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm like, holy cow. Uh, <laughs> I've never written that much email in my life. And I'm, you know, there's no way that I'm, I, I, I'm bound to be like, what, one of, However many people he two dozen to, yeah. yeah you know that he is so he is sending email like this constantly to all of the people that you know who actually matter who make a living with this but he's paying me an incredible amount of attention um, yeah and it's I mean it's a remarkable gift is how I'm perceiving it right that to get yeah. this kind of this kind of feedback so you know huge thanks to Jonathan he's not making any money out of this he's just doing what we talked about in the last episode. And I want to, you know, direct our listeners to episode, I think it was 56, uh, our prior episode. That interview, I think was, you know, it was fantastic as, uh, you know, as our rater reviewer mentioned, uh, you know, some real insight from him. And if you want to follow me as I'm doing everything that Jonathan Vodders tells me to do, uh, all of my workouts appear on Strava, and I'm super easy to follow. Just find me at bit.ly slash fatty Strava. Okay? So there you go. Um, I made a nice little bit.ly just so you can find me on Strava easy. Oh. Huh. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Man, you guys, uh, you know, the thing that's so interesting here is, you know, how, how clear and direct he is mm-hmm. in his communication to you. Uh, and then the fact that you promptly go out and do the workout like a little bot. Well, yeah, I mean, it's. I figured, you know, that needs to be sort of the default expectation. If you're going to accept uh, help from a coach, and perhaps this is more so with uh, Jonathan Vodders than I would be with anyone else. But, you know, I, I've never really had a coach before. But, I mean, you hire them for their expertise and their knowledge. And if you then... Uh, argue the point and uh, or change or adapt instead of doing precisely what is asked of you, then, I mean, why do you bother having a human coach? You may as well just go ahead and buy a book and, you know, then adapt it on your, on its own. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like <laughs> the respectful thing to do to acknowledge, uh, you know, someone with this much experience is to be really precise and, you know, obedient as it were in doing what they ask. So yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this experience so far. Yeah. Well, no argument about, you know, the intent of following exactly what's been laid out for you. Just, I've had so much experience with so many friends being coached and then hearing stories about, well, I was supposed to do this and then such and such happened. And then this thing happened. And so I ended up only doing this for this workout or, you know, whatever, just the, the OBEs, the overtaken by events that, you know, 
whatever, you know, a flooded road. And it's like, oh, so I couldn't do that climb. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, he lays this out and then you replicate exactly that thing. It's like, wow. <laughs> well, and, and part of that, I mean, is, you know, the miracle of technology, right? It's, it, it is cold and snowy outside right now. And so I'm doing all of this in my basement. Um, yeah. And that's the other piece. Four hours on a kicker. It's like, dude. Um, oh, yeah. That's it's, an achievement. <laughs> I, I've done that so many times now. I no longer see, you know, it, it, there was a time when doing uh, hour upon hour on a trainer just seemed like the most miserable thing ever. I'm perfectly comfortable doing that now. You know, I've I've got Netflix. I've got Amazon Prime streaming video. I've got, you know, I, you know I've got entertainment options galore, which is part of it. And then, you know, and, you know, unasked for endorsement of well, both Trainer Road and of the Wahoo Kicker, it's super easy for me to put together a workout that hues to exactly what is being asked of me. And, you know, when you're told, you know, do this many watts and do, you know, this kind of interval and so forth, you can put it together. And it's not, you're, you're not approximating it. And I love that precision, right? I'm, it's like, I want you to do an hour and a half at 170 watts. I did exactly an hour and a half at 170 watts, right? You know, I can make it, I can do exactly that. If you go and yeah. look at my Strava, you'll be like, holy crap, it's exactly an hour and 30 minutes and eight seconds. You know, because there was some spin down time, but and it was at exactly 170 watts. You know, so yeah, you, you bet. And you're like, give me the numbers, and I will, and, and you know, I and I will turn out the cadence. I will turn out the power. I will turn out the time. You know, and if I can't, then you know, I will tell tell them afterwards. It's like, sorry, I was not able to achieve this. It looks like uh, I, I need you know, I need help building up to that. And so far, I haven't been given any workouts like that, but. I'm sure they're coming, right? I mean, we're <laughs> going to find where the edge of my envelope is at some point. But, you know, right now yeah. I'm pretty comfortable in my, you know, in what he's given me. And he's, you know, he's obviously giving me things to build up, you know, new sets of skills and new sets of endurance. So. Mm, mm, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Really having a lot of fun with this. So enough about me. Let's talk about the racers at Raleigh. Uh, and actually, let's get started perhaps with the director of Team Rally. Yeah, Tell yeah. us a little so, bit about this interview. This is Jonas Carney. Um, you know, he's somebody whose career I followed for basically its entirety, you know, from the early 1990s um, and, you know, on through his later days with Prime Alliance. We talk a little bit about his wins at Manhattan Beach. Um, and, you know, since then, uh, he's been a director. And, you know, he's somebody who knows the domestic scene intimately well uh he's a very sharp guy and uh it was just a whole lot of fun to, uh sit down and talk with him and get his perspective on you know where the domestic scene is and the evolution of riders here domestically as well so here we are with jonas carney okay so i'm here with jonas carney of team rally they're having their southern california training camp uh we're in oxnard actually in a little pocket of oxnard that I've never seen before, and I spent a lot of years in Southern California. So Jonas, I, I guess the first question I want to ask is, the climate for pro cycling in the U.S. has changed an awful lot since the reason decision. Um, I mean, I called that Hurricane Katrina for cycling. I'm curious for you, you know, what sort of fallout do you continue to see from that? Um, you know, I don't know as far like what we 
what we're continuing to see from that. But uh, you know, that was a real tough period for uh, cycling in general, North American cycling especially because of the sort of economic downturn during the same exact time. You know, 2008, the economy was really really hit hard here in North America, and uh, in addition to all the scandals and stuff, and uh, so it was it, it was, a, it was a really tough time to survive as a cycling team here in North America and uh, keep our heads above water and keep going. And we were really fortunate to have uh, great partners and uh, very fortunate to have Charles ha Charles Aaron um, uh, kind of uh, doing an amazing job at finding finding good sponsors, new sponsors, and keeping us going for now. This is our eleventh season. For people who don't remember the transition uh, of sponsors, take us briefly through, you know, original sponsor was? Okay, original sponsor was Kelly Benefit Strategies, and then uh, we sort of uh, transitioned Optum Health came on board as a co-title, and then uh, and th there were some other sponsors along the way that were co-title or presenting level, but it was Kelly, and then it transitioned to Optum, and then we transitioned to Rally. Yeah, uh, and I mean, yeah, it's one of the longest uh, standing domestic programs at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, a very successful one. Um, in terms of you know being sponsored by an American company without any European aspirations, uh, that really drives you to focus all of your efforts on the domestic scene. Um, you know what. You know, knowing some of the crazy UCI rules, um, what does that do to your ambitions? You know, what does it what does it make you focus on, both in terms of you know which races, and what's that mean in terms of the riders you select? Well, um, you know, we we do race in Europe. We have raced in Europe every year for eleven years now. Uh, we we uh, we've done it. You know, little bits at a time where we go over for a month, go over for two weeks, or six weeks, or a month, or whatever it is. Um, we do it when we can, and we usually use that as uh, either to build up for something like Tour of California, or something that to gain experience for our younger riders. Um, and uh, you know, so there's a lot of value in us going over racing international stuff. We raced actually not just Europe, but all over Asia, South America, elsewhere too. But um, you know, our sponsor is an American sponsor, and their focus is North America, and so that's our focus. Um, Rally is is expanding and, and uh, internationally, and so we're hoping that that'll mean that we'll, our team will continue to race internationally and hopefully increase our international presence. Um, but yeah, I mean the first first thing uh, first priority for us is to make sure that our sponsors are getting a return for their investment and we're doing right by them. And if that means racing in America, then uh, then North America will be our focus, and we we pick the races that are in their markets, the races that are most important to them, races that can get uh, garner the most media attention for our sponsors and, uh, and we target those races. Um, and in terms of, you know, selecting riders, uh, you know, if you get a really hot talent, mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody who's uh, a climbing phenom, there's always the risk of losing them to a pro tour team. Mm -hmm. How much of your mission do you see as, as being a feeder to big pro tour teams versus you know, selecting riders that you know you really want to hold, be able to hold on to and work with over a career. Yeah, I mean, there, there's just a lot of give and take in that. You know, uh, 
we lose riders all the time to bigger teams. It's been happening since we started. We've lost a lot of great riders to European programs and uh, or programs that could offer more European racing. Um, and uh, and that it's hard. It's hard to rebuild and 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 uh, find riders to fill those gaps when you lose like a Mike Woods or a Chad Hago or a, you know David Vayu, guys who are like just stellar riders that we brought in, developed. But uh, you know it works both ways. You know we're also taking you know pulling riders from smaller teams that see our opportunity as a, as a as they see our team as an opportunity to. Uh, to have more opportunities because we do race in Europe and we do get invitations to the bigger biggest races in North America so while it's frustrating for us to lose our best guys it's frustrating for the smaller teams when we when we when we recruit their riders so obviously the bigger we the bigger we get the more we grow the the less I think the less difficult it'll be so that's our goal is to sure is to get bigger so that we'll uh, we'll lose less of our best riders well and you also represent you know a great opportunity for uh, writers who've already had, you know, a long career, a, mm -hmm. a Danny Pate, mm -hmm. uh, a Brad Huff, you know, somebody uh, who, you know, might have trouble finding uh, a home otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, the obvious thing that everybody talks about with an experienced writer that like that mm -hmm. um, is the mentoring that they can give younger writers. Mm -hmm. But I think people talk about that because there's not as much talk about just how tactical the racing uh, can be and the, the level of knowledge that someone needs uh, to really be successful in terms of understanding how the road's playing out. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Absolutely. I think there's two aspects to, to that. Uh, you know, one being having the older, more experienced riders mentoring the young guys. And we have a guy like Danny Pate who spent, I think, eight years in the world tour. Yeah. Um, on the team and we have a junior world champion on our team you know 18 years old hasn't even turned 19 yet and we we see that as a huge uh, that's the way we see uh developing young riders that's always the way we've done is bring in young talented guys um who have a lot to learn and then having those veteran riders you know help them and mentor them because as directors there's only so much we can do we're not on the bike we're not out there when yep. things are happening we're in the car we can't see everything um, and nowadays we don't have radios all the time um, but then again also there's the strategy uh, in the bike race and to have the older guys who've been out there and seen it, it there is a lot that goes on in these races and you know I look back to something like California last year where Evan Huffman won the KOM jersey overall and um, not a lot of people know this but I, I think that um, you know without Danny Pate I don't know that we could have pulled that off and Danny wasn't the one who won the jersey and didn't get mm -hmm. the credit for it but I think without him in the race I don't know that we would have been able to do that all of the work that he was able to do and all the sort of guidance in the race he was able to give Evan uh, to help him accomplish that goal it was a major accomplishment for our team it was a lot of a lot of press a lot of media for our sponsors and uh, while Danny was behind the scenes getting the doing the dirty work not but not not the one wearing the KOM jersey so so yeah, having those older guys in the team is really valuable in the races, and but also in just sort of day to day helping out the young guys on and off the bike. You know, helping the young guys to not make mistakes, the mistakes that that the older guys have made. You know, yeah, um, we've all made a lot of mistakes, and we can pass that 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 uh, sort of knowledge on to the younger guys and help them to uh, skip over those parts. 
Now, your history in domestic racing uh, goes back to, if I recall correctly, even before Lance, uh, at least into the early 90s. Uh, and I remember you tailgunning at Manhattan Beach. Wasn't it two years in a row? You, you sat in, in last position and came from behind and took the sprint in what is a rather difficult sprint coming out of that last turn. Um, I'm curious, you know, what do you see in terms of how racing has changed over the years? Uh, how racing domestically has changed over yeah. the years? Um, well, you know, it's just, it, there's, there's always sort of ebb and flow, you know. We get some really great races, and then we lose really great races, or we have more teams, there's some more money, the market becomes better for the riders. And teams go away, and um, so I've kind of seen all of that since you know late late 80s, early 90s, um, and uh, it's changed a lot. I think the one thing that you can in the early 90s, you know, there was a couple of big big uh, sort of heavy hitter teams that had the most of the best riders that sort of dominated most of the races, and then there were some smaller teams that were fighting for for uh, results and. And then the sport grew tremendously, and there was a lot more teams, a lot more money for the riders, a lot more foreign guys coming in the United States. The peloton got a lot deeper, a lot more depth. And uh, and now we've seen this real decline. We still have a lot of great races. Mm -hmm. um, Tour of California, mm -hmm. Utah, Alberta. We, you know, the new races that will hopefully happen this year. Um, so the racing scene is pretty, is, is pretty solid. It hasn't changed a ton, and I think there's actually more bigger races they've changed a lot over the years but as far as racing goes um or I mean, as far as uh, the teams go i mean we're kind of almost back now to the way it was in the early 90s where there's just a few teams that have pretty good budgets and there's a and then and then a bunch of teams that are that are uh, uh struggling or they don't they don't have as big of a touch budget. And go. It's it's touch and go, and um, you know, eight years ago there was a ton of teams um, and a ton of money in North America racing domestically, and now yeah. there's now there's still teams, but they're much uh, they're funded, their funding is much lower than what it was eight years ago. So it's tough. There's a lot of good riders. There's so much more depth in the peloton today compared to what it was like, say 20, 25 years ago, but. There's not enough teams that have enough money to really sustain that. There's a lot of uh, on the men's side. It's it's really tough right now. There's a lot of guys who've had to retire, or guys that have had to turn back amateur, or guys that are racing for close to nothing. That are uh, that uh, you know. I think like six eight years ago, these guys would have been doing really well. So it's it's definitely sure. right now. It's a tough time. We'd like to see more teams and some more sponsors in the sport. Now, one kind of ultra specific question, you know. Over the last 15 years, we've seen pro riders get lighter, um, a lot less muscle mass, you know, more lungs and legs. Um, and, you know, it's easy for me to, to look at that and see the effect of the Grand Tours and how, how it's played out because of the Grand Tours. But I've also seen that, you know, domestic riders are a lot lighter than they used to be. I mean, I think back to the days of, uh, you know, uh, Mike Zanoli. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know Davis Finney, mm -hmm. um, you know I, I wouldn't cross Davis in a bar if you paid me. Um, mm -hmm. But you don't see guys who have builds like them, and you know even Kiefel, mm -hmm. uh, you know not big by those standards, but he would be huge today. Um, 
Why is it you think, even though so much of the racing is still based on criteriums, what what is it that has caused that to play out? That, or have you even given it any thought? You know, I've just seen the trend in that, uh, the, in my mind, the trend just kind of comes down to the science uh, now that everyone's training with power meters. And, um, you know, the science, you know, has really shown that, you know, it kind of comes down to watts per kilo. And, and most guys are training with coaches now. Um, it's it's much more, there's a lot more depth in the peloton because the 50th or 100th Beth hundredth best guy in the peloton actually has a coach and is training properly and understands these things whereas 25 years ago or whatever you know a lot of people were just winging it and mm -hmm. didn't have coaches or the technology wasn't there so um, but for sure that's the trend is that you know that guys are getting getting lighter cutting weight and just focused on watts per kilo but uh, but there still are some some big dudes out there who are uh, still some really big guys. I mean, Tom Zerbel just retired at the end of last year, and he, you know, and on on his best form, he'd be 195 pounds, big guy. So there's still some guys out there. But really, um, nowadays, I think that just all this technology, training with power, has, has really shown a light on the fact that watts per kilo are what gets the job done, and so everybody is focused on that. Wow, wild, yeah. Well, good luck this year. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> I'll certainly be watching, but uh, thanks lots. Awesome, Appreciate thank you. It. Oh, watts per kilo, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is, it's like uh, my nightmare, my my dreams, my everything. That's all I'm thinking about right now. So it's nice to know they're thinking about that as well. Yeah, I really don't want to know mine because I, I fear it's a negative number, in fact. <laughs> I'm right at four right now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow, dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you were sharing earlier, uh, you know, from your work with JV, I mean, your fat max isn't that much lower than my FTP. Hmm. Interesting. No, yeah. depressing. Wrong answer. Depressing. <laughs> That's interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah Makes sure me want to race you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but back to them. I'm sorry. I, I, I yeah. made this about me, which is my really my superpower. But I mean, really interesting, just the the dynamic of the domestic team that the expectation that, yeah, if we have someone who's really great, we're going to lose them. And that's OK. We we understand that and we appreciate that. That's one of the things that I most loved about the conversation with Jonas mm -hmm. was just how sanguine he is about the whole thing. You know, yeah. sponsors come and go, riders come and go. Um, you know, we're more disciplined now. We know more. This is, you know, his acceptance of the state of the sport. You know, he it's obvious that he's at peace with it and he just wants yeah. to do good work. And that's what made that conversation so much fun for me. But yeah. moving right along, uh, our next conversation is with Evan Huffman, who, you know, I mean, Really, you know, still very young guy, but won the KOM jersey last year at the Tour of California. And, you know, circumstances played in his favor, but you don't get there without a lot of talent and riding like crazy. So um, we kind of go back through uh, his career some to, to bring everybody up to speed um, and then talk a little bit about where he's going now. And we'll get to that interview with Evan Huffman right after this break. You're 
looking at your first two on the podium right now. And now here you go. The cat mouse game yeah, has absolutely. begun. Team will not pull through. And Evan Huffman is not pedaling. I mean, now he's got crystal cranks on that bike. Is he pedals any harder than the brakes? So he does that We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist to hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. Welcome back to The Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. Uh, right before the break, we had Patrick telling you a little bit about Evan Huffman. Let's get to that interview. So I'm here with Evan Huffman of Team Rally. Um, Evan, you seem to be uh, really on a pretty meteoric rise in your career. Uh, for listeners who aren't that familiar with the season you had last year, um, let's go back and recap a, a couple of the highlights. Um, I started the year in Europe uh, in February, which was a little bit of a tough start uh, with the it was bad weather and jet lag and everything, but then came back uh, home and did some kind of more local events, uh, Snelling Road Race and yeah. Stage Race, and won both of those, which was an awesome start, wow. or kind of, yeah, way to Snelling is get a the tough, tough going. race. Yeah, it was a hard Was race. it windy and wet that year? Um, it was dry. Okay. Um, I remember. I don't think it wasn't super windy, but it's always a little bit windy. It wasn't like uh, I've I've done windier editions. I'll say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's still a hard race. There's always a good field there. Um, I remember, and then went back to Europe uh, later in March, which was pretty good. We got second in a team time trial in Italy. Um, you know, came back. Redlands was kind of mediocre for me as well as Gila, but then California, uh, Tour of California, was a pretty breakout ride for me. Getting in the breakaway on stage two that went to the line and finishing second, and then going on to win the KOM jersey was awesome. And then had a couple solid results after that. At you know third at Winston Salem, fifth at 
nationals in the well not to skip ahead of the tour of california oh, yeah. too quickly you did kind of keep that special little jersey right yeah. to the end yeah 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 it was good uh i mean if i if i remember correctly that's the first time a, a continental team has taken one of the jerseys all the way to the end of the race right no will routley won it on this team actually two years ago okay that's for two years before that i think but it is uh it was a big result for me i was very very satisfied wasn't really a goal going in and just kind of worked out the being in the break there's a lot of points that day and it was like gotta go for them and then was able to get more points the next day and then had big enough of a lead i was able to shift my focus to that take a couple easy days didn't go full out in the time trial and then got some more points on the santa rosa day which had a lot so what'd you think of racing that course that was a, that's one of those days where you're glad to be in the breakaway. Just you don't have to like fight with a bunch of guys for position because the roads. It was a little bit. It rained before we started, and I don't think yeah. we actually got rained on. But there were some damp roads, and it was really narrow and some pretty technical descents. So it was a little bit scary at times. But uh, now nah, it's fun. <laughs> Something different, I guess. But it was nice to be in the break and be able to kind of choose your own line a little bit more on the descents and stuff but yeah yeah yeah. tough roads out there yeah and then (laughs) yeah the rest of the summer had some good results here and there some podiums uh and then uh got the stage one at tour of alberta and finished third overall there which was a really good way for me to finish off the year i was super motivated for that and really Mm -hmm hungry for it and I rode really aggressive all week and so I was super happy to, and satisfied to win a stage there yeah very cool and then went on to Worlds I didn't go to Worlds oh. no I just did uh, whatever that race is called uh, in Pennsylvania Reading 120 oh, okay. and Doylestown Crit and then didn't do Worlds Okay. I wasn't particularly interested in going back to guitar <laughs> uh, is also super late so it would have been extended my season like five weeks I think Ooh. it's hard to just train for five weeks for a one day race especially when it's in guitars doesn't necessarily suit me very well so um, and those were despite what Brian Cookson had to say those were some pretty brutally hot days yeah, I I mean it's always warm there. I've done tour guitar and it's like you know in the 80s in February, so it's a little bit of an extreme place and a climate for a bike race. Not my favorite, <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. Maybe this year, go to Worlds in Norway. Now, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your background. You're from Sacramento. And um, uh, how'd you come up uh, into cycling and into racing? Um, my first my like uh, entry into sports when I was super young was swimming. So I started doing that when I was like six. And then that got me into triathlon, which then got me into cycling. So it was a little bit of a backwards path and a lot of people take. But um, yeah, basically just through mutual friends, I did my first like real cycling race when I was 17 uh Lampart Crit Sacramento a <laughs> junior race so it was like a perfect timing for me to get into the sport when I was still a junior so I had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of races but mm-hmm. 
Um, whereas it can be a lot harder if you're older. Um, but right. even though a lot of people start even younger, you know. Um, so yeah, I just kind of found my way onto various local elite teams from there. Uh, Lombardi Sports, uh, Yahoo for a year, and then Cal Giant, which is where I really started to develop into a rider who could kind of win at the U23 level. Um, and then had a really good year in 2012 with them. This is my last year as U23 and largely through the team's relationship with Specialized, got a two-year contract with Astana. So did that, which was an experience. Um, didn't, in the end, it, you know, they decided not to renew my contract, so it didn't exactly work out. But then, since then, been back racing in the U.S. for two years with Smart Stop and now Rally. Mm-hmm. So. You had a, a funny sort of grin there on your face as you talked about Astana. I'm curious, in terms of opening your eyes to European racing and the way uh, European teams do things, you know, what were what were some of the more eye-opening experiences for you? Uh, that's a good question. I don't. I don't. Can't think of anything specific that really stands out. I guess it's a lot of small things. Uh, Are we talking culturally or just riding style? Uh, it's. I guess it's both. I think. <laughs> D. All of the above. Yeah, I think largely it's culturally and just the way that. The team and individuals operate off the bike. I mean, it is different, like racing at the world tour level and racing in Europe than it is in the U.S. or at a smaller level. But at the end of the day, it's still a bike race, so it's like a lot of it's the same. It's just you go faster. It's a little more controlled, this or that. But it's more of the stuff that happens off the bike that was more of a shock coming, especially for me coming from like. A small amateur team where like no one's even getting paid a salary and then you're on like one of the biggest teams in the world all of a sudden you have 26 teammates instead of whatever like 10 to 15 and you have you know eight directors instead of one so it's that was the biggest adjustment was just trying to like figure out like how to fit into that organization and like just you know like who do you talk to if you need help with this or with that it's really easy to like get lost and trying to, you know, make friends or with teammates is hard when half the guys don't speak English at all or very poorly, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously. Uh, yeah, learning how to pack a rain bag, little stuff like that even is, is just, it's just a lot of small things to learn, I guess. And I did learn a lot, but, um, yeah, didn't I wouldn't say I thrived on the team, I guess. So. Okay. I mean, something you hear, you know, from guys who who spent time, you know, racing a full domestic calendar here uh and then going to Europe and racing mm-hmm. that um guys who are, you know, shall we say, you know, better climbers, uh you know, better suited to uh stage racing. Uh don't really look forward to coming back to the U.S. because of the preponderance of criteriums. Um, how's that been for you? I mean, you know, uh, you, you're certainly a great climber, um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, are you missing some of those European races, or or is this working out for you? Uh, I do I do miss it a little bit. Uh, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of crits, and I just like longer, harder races, especially stage races. Um, so I do I do miss the racing sometimes, but you know that said, there's also a lot of races where I can do well here obviously mm-hmm. like I showed last year um, I mean it's a lot better now than it was you know five years ago with Alberta and you know tour California and well, I guess that's been around for a while but there's still a lot of good climbing stage races around so it's kind of a mixed bag it's easier being in the US being an American being at home even when you're more on the East Coast you're still kind of at home Mm-hmm. Whereas in Europe, you're, it, you can definitely just that little bit less comfortable, just getting around and yeah, talking to people. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you speak any foreign languages yet? Uh, I speak some Italian. I kind of committed to learning that when I joined Astana, then ended up living in Spain after I'd kind of committed that I was going to do Italian. So it was kind of <laughs> maybe not the wisest way to go, but uh, it was good. And I was with the team. I. I wouldn't say I'm fluent, I've, and I've definitely forgotten some in the last couple of years. I haven't really kept up with it, but I, after two years, I could speak well enough, and that I could go to a team meeting and that was in Italian and understand what was happening and what I needed to do. So, yeah. Cool. So this year, uh, I'm curious. You know, after having you know a. a a season that you know really puts you on the map for a lot of other teams. Um, you know, what sort of competition do you expect to have? Uh, what are your um, what are your big goals for the season? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's always the changes. It seems like the domestic scene. It's you know people come and go. So like you know, for example, like Lachlan Morton was a huge threat at every race last year, and now he's you know, not going to be at any of the races anymore. So you're always kind of looking for who's going to be the best guy. And it definitely does put a little bit of a target on me having a good year last year and coming back. But um, I don't know, there's other guys too, I guess. So I'm not like super worried about it. Um, and the races I do tend to, or the races that I like and can do well at, a lot of times it's not a huge um difference i like to kind of force the issue you know being a sprinter it's harder when everyone knows you're the fastest guy in the race they kind of follow you or try to beat you (laughs) right whereas like in a time trial it's like you know it doesn't matter if you're the they can't really there's not there's no tactics to try to beat that guy because he's the best guy so it's not something i'm really worried about if anything it's i think is a benefit maybe to have a little more um responsibility from the team and uh from like respect from your teammates and trust and all that so i i'm uh, i'm definitely looking forward to yeah another good year cool do you know what events you're going to be protected in uh i'm not sure yet you know at this point i just know we're doing you know a four-week trip to europe uh pretty soon here pretty much the whole month of february and then um, after that, I 
uh, depends on if we, a lot of it depends on if we get into California or not, which from what I hear is, you know, right now is maybe, maybe not with the World Tour upgrade. So right. I really hope we do do it, and I would love to do it, and I'll, I'll be ready to do it, in which case kind of my March and April would be focused around getting ready for that, which would likely include Gila and Redlands. Um, uh, we have a lot of strong new guys on the team, especially Sep um, for the climbs. I think he's probably the best climber on the team. Uh, so it depends on who goes to which races and the route as far as who's going to be protected. Uh, so I don't necessarily have like a I don't I won't like know that so far in advance I think for most races it'll just be you kind of target your events and then you see how the team is and how the race unfolds but I definitely want to try to improve on what I did last year I think you know I showed that I'm really strong in time trials again um I think I have room to improve in that still and I want to do a little better next year which in most domestic races makes you GC threat if you can time trial well so sure I hope to be protected in races that have good time trials which would include Gila and Redlands and you know Cascade all that stuff excellent cool well thanks lots uh we'll certainly be watching uh good luck out there thank you wow Evan, I mean, you get a lot of uh, sense of humility. Uh, you know, he's a humble guy. And also sort of the uh, the domestic team uncertainty there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting position to be in. You know, he's seen, you know, truly the big time, you know, ridden on a pro tour team. Mm-hmm. And yet accepts that, you know, the circumstances are very different when you're on a pro continental team like Rally. And, uh, you know, I think it's really going to be a great period for him in terms of developing his abilities early, uh, more thoroughly Yeah. so that, you know, he'll have a chance to, in all likelihood, go back to the Pro Tour, but do it as a more talented, uh, more th- thorough, uh, you know, broader ability uh, and stronger rider, you know, somebody capable of doing even more, com- uh, uh, contributing more to a team. So I'm excited for him. This will yeah. be a neat year. And it wouldn't surprise me if this was his last year stateside. It'll be fun to watch and, you know, watch a rising star uh, as he progresses. So last interview that you conducted was with Jesse Anthony, who's a sort of a veteran. Tell us a little bit more about him. Yeah. So he's a New Englander. He came to my attention back in the early 2000s when he was riding for Toby Stanton's Hot Tubes team. Uh, He was a very hot shot junior, uh, took home a number of Stars and Stripes jerseys, raced cross, you know, was somebody who was, you know, definitely making a name for himself at that level, and then made a really seamless transition to the pro ranks, uh, where he's gone on to be, you know, a really solid uh, domestic rider. But what really interested me in talking with him is that he has begun spending a big chunk of each year living in Southern California and riding the canyon roads of, uh, of the Santa Monica Mountains. And so, you know, I just wanted to have a chance to get a, a pro rider's perspective on that, you know, plus talk a little bit more about how his career is going. So I'm here with Jesse Anthony with Team Rally. And uh, Jesse, I'm interested to talk with you because you're 
a relatively recent transplant to Southern California, right? Yeah, I've been here four years now. So to me, it still feels there's still nuances that I'm learning, but I also have spent a lot of time here in the past too. So it, it definitely feels like home. Well, that's nice. Um, now you're a New England boy, if I recall correctly, from your time with Hot Tubes. Yes, I grew up in uh, Beverly, Massachusetts, and my my whole family's still there, so I go back quite frequently. And when people ask me where I'm from, I say Massachusetts, and they when they ask me where I live, I say <laughs> Southern California. <laughs> it's like Facebook, you know, mm-hmm. current town. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Always from Massachusetts. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wish I could say I was from Massachusetts. I'm actually from the South. Oh, um, well, we won't hold that against you. Yeah, but I had seven <laughs> years in Northampton. So oh, perfect. That's how I got to know Toby. Uh, right. We're speaking of Toby Stanton, the director of Team Hot Tubes, yeah. uh, the most successful American junior and a spore program in history. Most successful, but also longest running. I believe he yeah. started the team in 1992. And that yep. was, then he's done it every year. I don't believe he's ever taken a year off from having a very, very competitive junior team. So, yeah. Yeah. I oh. mean, I remember going to mountain bike races <laughs> and seeing Jonathan Page, yep. you know, in that, that Wonder Bread kit, yep. uh, which was how he picked up the nickname Wonder Boy. <laughs> um, and remind me, did you get any national championships while, while you were racing for him? I won three cyclocross national championships when I was racing for Toby. Uh, never a jersey on the road, no. I believe I had some second places and some podiums in the junior national road championships uh-huh. in those days, but um, yeah, I never, I never have. The only road national championship I've won was the team time trial last year with Rally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a ride that was. <laughs> Team trial. I've we've done a lot of team time trials on the team with uh, Rally and formerly Optum. Um, I've definitely enjoyed those experiences, but they're some of the most painful times you can have on a bicycle. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think I've only done once since I finished my collegiate racing, but yeah, um, yeah. Of all the things I ever did, yeah, incredibly intense, yeah. incredibly painful, yeah, incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I believe the because you're in such a a tight team and teamwork atmosphere. Like my experience has been that being a part of of a team that's working specifically for one thing the entire race has uh, like enabled me to to push harder than I usually could. I think so. I've I found deeper places in the pain cave because you're only with your teammates and you know that they're relying on you and that your contribution directly affects everybody's result that day. So right. There's me, not a competitor who can capitalize upon your work. Right, exactly. So I feel like I've always used that as fuel for the fire. Um, but I think that's also brought on some extra extra hurt in the legs. But it's all good. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I was curious to talk with you. Um, you know, you're in Newbury Park. A, kind of... How did you come to settle here? And then B, I'm really curious about, you know, what you would want to share about riding in the Santa Monica Mountains. <laughs> well, I came to live here full time. The story kind of started in 2006 when I first turned professional. And my friend Tim Johnson and Sean Milne, who are both from Massachusetts, they brought me out to Santa Barbara to train. 
and they were kind of showing me what what we do when New Englanders turn pro. He's like, this is what we do. We go to Santa Barbara. We stay here January, February, March. The racing season kind of starts up in March, and then sometime between the end of March and early May, we'd move back to Massachusetts and spend the summer and uh, fall living there. Uh, Tim also raced cyclocross full time, so I raced cyclocross with him in the fall. Um, and so, yeah, for many years, I would come out to Santa Barbara in the winter to train. Um, eventually, I got tired of moving across the country twice a year and finding a rental house in Santa Barbara and, uh, you know, paying rent back in Massachusetts when I wasn't there and all these things. So I was like, I need to live one place that I can stay year round uh, where the weather's good enough to train. And I ended up in the Thousand Oaks area because it was close to Santa Barbara where I knew a bunch of people and I kind of knew the area. Uh, but I also wanted to be a little closer to L.A. and that, you know, the access to the that city. Um, flying out of LAX. Flying out of LAX actually helps a lot. So Newbury Park is still pretty far from L.A., which yeah. I like. I don't like being in that <laughs> concrete jungle. Or Can't imagine why. Yeah. Oh, man. So many people live down in, like, Santa Monica and, and try to train up here, and it, I don't understand riding the PCH every day every time I ride that section of the road I get pretty nervous but um Newbury Park's a it's just a quiet town got awesome access to a lot of outdoor stuff real easy access up to Santa Barbara access down to LAX like we spoke about um Ventura County um it's just a quiet really easy town to live in the weather's great all the time and I have I knew two people who lived in that area at the time and just having two people when I moved out um, at the end of 2012 just knowing a couple of people in the area really helped get established and, and mm-hmm. like get plugged into the community here. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's one thing that I miss as a former LA resident it's riding in the Santa Monica's. Mm. Uh, I mean, well, <laughs> other than the people, I, I left behind a lot of great people. Yeah. But uh, in terms of, you know, the, the number two item on my list, you know, climbing, Topanga, Fernwood, Saddle <coughs> Peak, yeah. uh, Ladigo, you know, yeah. uh, descending stunt, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm curious, I mean, when you need kind of a, a test piece for your fitness, you know, sure you climb on a trainer and do, you know, a proper traditional FTP test, but... I'm betting that there are climbs there that, you know, you use uh, as a real-world test of your fitness. What, what are your go-tos? Uh, honestly, the Rock Store is my favorite testing climb. Um, I don't think you need a lot of time to test. My coach and I kind of settled on eight minutes, which I don't do the whole Rock Store at eight minutes. But, okay, um, good. <laughs> we Actually, this year we're going to start testing, doing just the entire Rock Store climb as a test. and. Um, I, I've that's probably one of my favorite climbs. Well, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite climbs in the area. Latigo, I think, is awesome also, but I'm not r- really a climber type, so I kind of like the shorter one. Rockstar is great. Uh, Petrero is awesome, mm-hmm. and then a couple of, like the smaller sections, like the second part of Latigo, that that four minute puncher at the end. Yep. Um, oh, it's four minutes for you. <laughs> depends <laughs> on what kind of depends on the day, but. So, yeah, that was actually also the other attraction to moving out here was that the riding, uh, once I got to know these roads in the Santa Monica Mountains a little bit, the best riding I've found in the country, especially in the winter. Um, 
when the weather's nice, there's a lot of awesome places to ride in America. In the winter, when the weather's nice here, it just, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, the last three years we've had some pretty balmy winters and like, you know, leg warmers and arm warmers some days, but shorts and a jersey probably 75% of the time all the way through December, January, February. And that just makes training so much easier. Um, for me to plan, like I take the off season at the end of the fall, start my training, and I don't really have to plan my training around weather. Mm-hmm. Um, if there ever, usually if there ever is a rainy day, I'm fine to take a rest day, or I can switch days around. But having that consistent weather really enables me to train exactly how I want to, day in day out, and set a plan, you know, a week at a time or two weeks at a time and really accomplish that and on top of that it's just like just these roads never get old like you mentioned stunt latigo uh Mulholland, decker payuma there's all these climbs around that i've done them tons of times now and still every time i ride them i really appreciate the views and and some of those rides just never they never get old well and it's unusual to get a place where in such a a, a narrow concentration you have so many different roads to choose from. You know, if you're on PCH and you don't feel like climbing Deer Creek, you know, you just go down a little further, right. you know, you can do Yerba Buena instead or something, right. you know? Right. Uh, it's, um, I've never ridden another place like that because like, if you're in the French Alps, you know, you get to the bottom, you know, of the Cormier de Roseland and you're either turning right and going, going into Albertville or you're starting another climb. Mm-hmm. There, most of the time, it's hard to get lost in the Alps because you only get one choice at a time. Right, right. You know? Um, yeah, and even a place like Boulder, the canyon riding there, there's some pretty similar, that's probably the other similar area where you could do a string of canyons back and forth and kind of loop them in different ways, but it's much harder to loop them in different kind of segments or right. to loop them together in in many different ways. Usually there's couple of good routes you can do like you know sunshine to peak to peak and then down james and up you know there's some of these different uh routes but out here like you said there's you know there's five canyons on this side of of canaan and then there's latigo there's kind of that space in the middle but then you get over to fernwood payuma stunt old topanga topanga um las flores if you're (laughs) feeling up for it and tuna to go down so all those combinations out there you can just put together a different ride anytime and that stretch of Mulholland to get back and forth between the two kind of segments of, of canyons is such a great piece of road that you never really get tired of riding it so I've, I've gone out and back on that a couple of times in a row just to get to different climbs and do them you know go up one down the other you know switch yeah. that around yeah. And, uh, yeah, like I said, the, it never gets old, and you can keep looping stuff around here. Very cool. I'm curious. I mean, given, you know, given that you've raced all over and, you know, you've trained all over, I often tell people that if you can descend in the Santa Monica's, <laughs> you can descend anywhere in the world. Um, <laughs> do you have any caveats, any additions to that, any, you know... Uh, have you have you ridden any place else that you would put up against it or, or say is more difficult? Um, well, yeah, my descending has definitely improved since I've moved out here. Um, 
and just the frequency of going down long descents with varying corners um, has has made me improve my descending skills and I've just become a lot more comfortable on my bike doing that um, I think for me the biggest difference is that I know these roads and a lot of these descents especially the ones we ride frequently have almost perfect pavement you know like Decker you mentioned descending stunt yeah. um, even Latigo is just really really good pavement the whole way down um, so that really allows you to work on your descending technique instead of just managing the road and managing you know a safe uh like a safe line and speed you can actually push some corners and you know feel comfortable with where you're at um i descend westlake boulevard back you know deck this side of decker uh down into westlake to go back to newbury park you know five times a week so that descent i know so well and, and there's, there's that one turn yeah there's the super steep off camber turn with a couple of hairy turns leading into it um but yeah just just be that re- repetition um becoming comfortable on your bike that that makes a big difference when you do hit descents that you've never seen if you're racing in europe or, as you, or riding in europe as you mentioned or anywhere else where you know you're in colorado you start going downhill you just have that familiarity with your bike and how and the road feel and then looking through corners and stuff like obviously we descend so much around here that the more you practice anything like that the better you're going to get right right yeah yeah it it taught me i I mean i wouldn't say that i really knew all that much about descending um (laughs) you'll learn fast out here yeah yeah. uh i mean the funny thing is now you know i live in sonoma county and so everything that you've got from the santa monica's plus bad pavement and so (laughs) now i'm steep in the learning curve all over again and uh you know it, it it has made me appreciate what I learned there mm. uh, in a fresh way because yeah. I, I feel like such a newbie all over again. Yeah. Well, the, descending some of the roads up there is almost like skiing on the East Coast. Like yeah. the conditions are so <laughs> bad that if you can manage that without breaking yourself, you can come down here and you'll be like, what? There's glassy pavement? Like, sure, let's do this. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I living here, I ran 23 millimeter tires all the time. You know, uh, 25s are where it's at. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, the funny thing is now, like living in Sonoma County, you know, I I only run 27s if I don't have any 28s or something bigger. <laughs> you know, I, I've I've got a bike that will run 35s. You know, yeah, and then my gravel bike runs 40s. It's nice that the industry is catching up with uh with the best type of equipment to use easy gearing there's compact cranks SRAM makes the wi-fly derailleur yep. and cassette combo and now everybody's finally figuring out that big tires and low pressure are the way to go i when i started like when i started racing the nrc in 2006 i was i wouldn't say blowing my mechanics minds but i was spending some of their time always lowering my tire pressure before every race and i would just run like 95 and that was back when they pumped them up to about 110 yeah and uh i was like hey if i start pinch flattening a lot or something i'll let you (laughs) we'll talk i'll let you do your you know whatever pressure you want but until then i want to be able to corner (laughs) and and be comfortable so that's great that's great um will we ever see you back out on the cross uh circuit again Ah, good question um I really miss racing cross, but it's so hard on my body. 
Uh, I had so many back issues mm. uh, coming up through cross, and, and that's kind of the main reason I stopped was just because I was so inconsistent and I wasn't able to perform to how I knew I could consistently. I would have those days when my back was fine and, um, you know, if things worked out, then I'd have some good days and I those were awesome. Like, I really, really miss those days on the cross bike when you get a course dialed in and you feel good and you have a good good legs. But the, the agony I went through just constantly fixing my body and seeing therapists and, um, you know, struggling and training because I had this back that was just so knotted up. Uh, that was really, really difficult to deal with mentally. So I always remember that when I think about coming back to cross. I would love to race cross again. I, I truly miss the sport, but yeah. um, it would it would take a lot. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, given the number uh, of racing days so many guys have, it's, mm-hmm. it's a big ass to try to do both those seasons. It's a different animal than now also than when I used to race. Um, a lot. The season's a lot longer. It's a lot more high-profile events, which is all great. But I see with these guys like Jeremy Powers and Jamie Driscoll that you know I grew up racing with those guys. And I see what they're doing now, and I mean they're full-time cross racers. That just handling the cyclocross season is enough. Um, and I was always doing a full road season and the cross season, so um, you can definitely adapt to that. But it's hard and. Yeah, it's a really, really, really hard sport, and I have a lot of respect for those guys who can race at the top level for a while. You know, those I mentioned those two guys, and they're some sure. of my older friends in the sport, and I, I really appreciate watching them and seeing what they do. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, thanks for the time. Yeah, of really course. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that's good. Man, those guys work so hard. Yeah, yeah. I I can't imagine, you know, getting as many race days in a year if you're doing, you know, just the domestic road scene. But if you add cyclocross on top of it, that's a very long year. Yeah. You know, my most intense year ever, I had 52 race days. And I was, yeah, I was completely done at the end of that season. And a lot of these guys, you know, just from the road season, they'll have 60 days of racing. Man, incredible. Yeah, he pretty yeah. well just convinced me to never do cyclocross. So. <laughs> and I'm here so, I am hoping I can do more of it next year. I'm sore and fatigued already. I certainly don't need more of that. I don't think that was his intent. Uh, and, <laughs> and probably I'm actually just using that as an excuse. Great set of interviews, though, Patrick. Well, Good. thanks. It was a lot of fun to do. You know, it was fun getting to go and, and spend time with those guys. I was bummed that I didn't get to do any riding with them. But it was one of those things where my current fitness to try to hold on to any of those guys going easy would have been a challenge. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I chose today just to, you know, spend with uh, some of the crew, uh, hang out with their uh, mechanics a little bit, you know, see what they were up to. Um, you know, it was, it was fun. And it was, you know, nice to be back in Southern California. Yeah. Always nice to go and visit Southern California. I will be there next week. But I will not Good be bringing a bike. I'm just oh. taking the kids to Disneyland. So I, you know, l- listening to that interview with Jesse all over again, it it made me pine for those roads all over again. It does happen. Mm-hmm. It definitely does happen. Um, and oh, yeah, yeah I, I struggle with that a little bit. Well, you but know, I'm not moving back. <laughs> you know, it, it it's okay to love more than one place, right? There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Nothing at yeah, all. It's wrong not with like that. a marriage. 
<laughs> let's let's use that as the final word on those interviews <laughs> and go on to the paceline picks. Uh, how about if I go first with the paceline pick? Please. Uh, I am obsessing, as I think I do every year, with the Iditarod Trail Invitational and specifically the live tracker. Uh, there are a few names that I know, no one that I'm like super close friends with, but, uh, uh, Jill Homer's, uh, longtime boyfriend, Beat Jagerlaner. I'm not sure I'm getting, in fact, I, I'll say I'm 99% sure I'm getting his last <laughs> name wrong, but, uh, he's doing the thousand miler and is in contention for, uh, for the lead. He's in about fifth place. Jay Pedivari is doing great. And Jenny Kuriak, uh, Mike Kuriak's wife, is also just killing it. So, you know, it's it's funny, it not funny, it's fun watching people do this amazing race that uh I would only ever consider watching. I mean, it's yes. as a person who is really not a great cold weather rider, I appreciate perhaps even more watching people who do have that kind of grit, that kind of uh intensity or endurance ability so the um, mad determines yeah, yeah love it so um if you haven't already you know go to trackleaders.com slash iti 17 that would be uh short we'll have a link it, yeah, yeah let's put a link on the site yeah. uh what's your pace line pick patrick so i'm getting back into part of the season you know with more grasshoppers i've got one coming up this weekend super sweet water and so I've been spending time on my Danucci and falling madly in love all over again with Continental's Cyclocross Speed tire. That's the model name, Cyclocross Speed. Mm. It's a 35 millimeter tire uh, with a diamond file tread and knobs on the side. And it's, you know, it's made for hard pack, fast conditions, which you get when you're mixing it up between road and gravel and roads with lots of potholes. It's just a fantastic tire. And, you know, anytime I don't need a 40 millimeter tire in order to get through, you know, crazy rocky stuff, this continues to be my go-to tire. I'm really crazy about it. And so uh, even though I've already reviewed it, I figured, yeah, I'll make this my, my pick of the week. Fantastic. I might have to talk with you about that again when I start thinking about the Crusher and the Tusher. It sounds like it might not be a bad match. Uh, you know, it's worth considering. It did. It, it, to me, it just depends on how much rock there is and what mm -hmm. the chances are of pinch flatting. You know, if I'm really risking uh, pinch flats uh, from huge rocks that I could hit, I start going for something bigger. All right. But uh, if I if I just need you know something for smoother conditions, um, yeah, it's a dynamite tire. Just love right. this thing. Fantastic. Cool. What's coming up on an RKP? Let's see. Uh, well, uh, just posted uh, a review of EE brakes. So this is a, a, a brake that's, you know, not Dura Ace or Campagnolo or something aftermarket. They're not cheap, but they're really effective. And I actually, I just heard from an engineer friend uh, last night that someone doing some independent testing found out that it is the most powerful caliper brake on the market. So that was a, a really pleasant surprise. Um, Let's see, uh, I did some waterproof socks uh, earlier mm. this week. I rode them in some events, and they're thick. They're from Seal Skins, but, you know, pretty impressive stuff. 
And then there have been a, a couple of new essays, uh, one about my move from Southern California to Sonoma County called On Moving. Yep, uh, something that most of us have had to confront at one time or another. Uh, good stuff there, worth checking out for sure. And I think we're going to go ahead and slam the door on this episode. Uh, mm-hmm. And let's thank our listeners, as always, for listening. And also ask you, please, subscribe, rate, review us, all the places that you normally would. For Patrick and for Hottie, I'm Fatty, and you've been listening to The Pace Line. In New York, Chicago, or Boston, a favorite day might be the one when they run the marathon. Here in Anchorage, it's this day, the day of the ceremonial start to the Iditarod. (laughs) 